0: This is the legendary Tom DeFalco, and you are listening to the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast of all time. And unfortunately, I was not invited to be part of this podcast. I can't believe it. A living legend like me. And they didn't even invite me. Welcome to episode 22 of the unofficial 75 Greatest Marvels Countdown podcast, the podcast where we discuss and examine the 75 Greatest Marvel stories as chosen by Marvel readers, and published by Marvel Comics itself. The Countdown continues every Wednesday until June 1st, 2016, normally. <laughs> this episode is a couple of days late for reasons explained in the delayed announcement. So my guest host this time is returning after discussing the marriage of Spider-Man and Mary Jane. Welcome back, Amanda Ray Westfall. And this week we are talking about X-Men Age of Apocalypse. Specifically... Uncanny X-Men three twenty to three twenty one, X-Men forty to forty one, Cable number twenty, X-Men Alpha, Amazing X-Men one to four, Astonishing X-Men one to four, Factor X one to four, Gamma the Externals one to four, Generation Next one to four, Weapon X one to four, Excalibur one to four, man one to four, X-Men Omega, Age of Apocalypse the Chosen, and X-Men Chronicles one and two. Those issues were written by Fabian Nicieza, Howard Mackey, Jeff Loeb, John Francis Moore, Mary Hama, Mark Wade, Scott Lobdell, and Warren Ellis. They were penciled by Adam Kubert, Charles Boda, Chris Pichalo, Eddie Wagner, Ian Churchill, Joe Matarara, Ken Lashley, Renato Arlem, Roger Cruz, Ron Garney, Salvador Larocca, Steve Epting, Steve Scroquet, Terry Dodson, Tim Sale, Tom Lyle, Tony Daniel, Val Cimicis, and Andy Kubert. They were inked by Al Milgram, Bob Wyachek, Bud LaRosa, Cam Smith, Chris Warner, Dan Green, Dan Panosian, Eddie Wagner, Harry Candelario, Hilary Barda, James Pascoe, Joseph Rubenstein, Carl Kiesel, Kevin Conrad, Mark Buckingham, Matt Ryan, Mike Christian, Mike Sellers, Philip Moy, Scott Hanna, Sergio Melia, Terry Austin, Tim Sale, Tim Townsend, Tom Weberzin, W.C. Carani, and Klaus Janssen. They were colored by Ashley Underwood, Digital Chameleon, Electric Crayon, Glynis Oliver, Joe Rosas, Kevin Summers, Marie Javins, Matt Webb, Mike Thomas, Steve Busolato. Lettered by Bill Oakley, Chris Eliopoulos, Comicraft, NJQ, Pat Brousseau, and Richard Starkings. This was launched under Editor-in-Chief Tom DeFalco and finished under Editor-in-Chief Bob Harris. Other editors include Lisa Patrick, Kelly Corviz, Susan Gaffney, and Jade Gardner. Cover dates ranged from... November 1994 to June 1995. Release dates range from January 1st 1995 to April 18th 1995 and as previously mentioned it came in at number 22 in the countdown. So technical details out of the way in over 40 issues here. Now we can get into what the actual story itself is about.
1: Is this DeFalco the one we met at Comic-Con? Yep. Okay. Yeah. I thought so.
0: The listeners sure. will know we met him because we've he recorded that beautiful tag that you heard at the start of this episode.
1: Mm. He is very nice.
0: <laughs> he is. He is very open and very approachable. And he was doing his best to maintain story integrity in the start of the era where marketing was starting to allow to dictate to editorial what they could do. And my understanding is that at some point in this period, he said, no, I'm going to make sure that our creators have at least this much control. So you work without or you work without me. And The Marvel owner said, okay, bye. Lame. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was the era of the comics. This is very much a crossover event from the 90s. Not only was every X title on the market involved in the Legion Quest story that kicked it off, or close to it, but once this started, all other books got suspended. So there was no uncanny X Men, there was no X Force, there was no X Factor, no cable, none of the ongoing X books continued while this event was happening. For those four months, there were the Age of Apocalypse tie-ins, and that's it. And this was in the days before Diamond Solicitations were a commonplace thing for the actual buyers to see. It was just the comic shops. So a lot of the people reading would have had no idea when this status quo was ending or if there was any plan for it to end. So, so we're not going to go into too much detail in the plot synopsis because there's a lot of four-issue miniseries to cover. The Basic idea is that, as we said, it kicks off with Legion Quest, when Legion, aka David Haller, aka the son Professor X didn't know he had until he was basically an early adolescent, had decided that he was going to make things right and correct past mistakes and go back in time and kill Magneto so that there wouldn't be the opposition to his father. When he's back in time, we see him make choices that clearly show he doesn't understand what being a hero is really all about, to put it mildly.
1: But it sounds like they're, that he's still crazy. Oh, yeah. Or not, like, even though he thinks he's whole, that he's not.
0: Yeah, he may be much better than he's ever been, but, I mean, he's he first appeared in a new Mutants arc, and the name Legion comes from the fact that there were a legion of voices in his head. Mm-hmm. And each of the personalities he can manifest had a different power. Well, in this story, all of a sudden he has access to multiple powers, which wasn't an issue before. Every personality he had was one power or another. Now he can access them all, and he's exhibiting powers he's never exhibited before, goes back in time, and in his attempt to kill Magneto, ends up killing Professor Xavier instead. So then what we have from that point on is the modern-day quote-unquote status quo. So instead of being back 40 years, or 30 years in the past, as the story was set, it would have been the contemporary time on the calendar, but without Professor X found in the X-Men, if that was under Magneto's purview instead, Apocalypse... Would have effectively changed the face of the planet and made mutants the top dogs and ruled the world and It's in the course of this story that a number of individuals decide that they've had enough of that, and there's a few parallel teams deciding that it's time to assert apocalypse. The original bishop somehow has memories of both and manages to convince the magneto in the age of apocalypse aka earth two nine five that things should be set right, and his friend Charles should still be alive, and the world would be a better place with him. So they work together to try and get the world reset, which is ultimately what happens with a number of alternate versions along the way. You know, some similarities, the friction between Cyclops and Wolverine still exists to the point that Cyclops blasted off one of Wolverine's hands and Wolverine cut out one of Cyclops' eyes before this story arc starts. Wolverine is romantically involved with Jean Grey at the beginning of the story. So there's a a fair amount of, you know, the fun that you can have with the parallel universes there's. Something you've already seen with a slight twist. There's completely new relationships, like Magneto and Rogue being romantically involved.
1: Which would have been that would have been a lot better though if they had explained how they had a baby. Because they hit up heavily on like that she can't really be a mom. Tammy to can't touch him, but she would have had to naked to make the baby, I and mean, Magneto would have had to yeah be they've... unaffected long enough to get to the baby making. Which,
0: I mean, we don't know much about Magneto. We don't know how much time that takes him. But there's still... <laughs> <laughs> there, yeah, There's there are definite unanswered questions there, uh-huh. to put it mildly. There's a lot of unanswered questions. Honestly, that bugged me a little bit. But most of this, it is a, a fun visit to an alternate universe. Those who have listened to me before may have heard my reactions to House of M, which is superficially similar. Where there's a major event, alternate reality is created, Magneto is the leader of the mutants, and mutants are ruling the world. The only difference is that Magneto is just leading the X-Men as opposed to the world. This time it's Apocalypse. But again, I had similar issues with it. It's It has a few implications for long-term continuity, but largely what happens within these stories, you can find it a lot of fun, but when these pages are done, they have very little impact on what comes next. At least with other stories, there's some chance that they have that influence the risk of alternate futures and alternate timelines. There's often the reset button at the end.
1: For me, it created less emotional impact of the story. Because then the whole time I was like, you left out this huge thing. So every time they would bring up the son, I'd be like, well, I don't even know how he got here. So whatever.
0: <laughs> yeah. It would have been nice if this had been one of the realities where Rogue was in more control of her powers. Or if they'd alluded to a period in her past
1: when she was in control. Yeah. Just some kind of explanation. Because it uh shadow king that bothered me too because <laughs> i don't believe that he would have been apocalypse's little bitch boy so i felt like it didn't make any sense at all
0: yeah and here amul faroq the shadow king who was dead in the main continuity was alive and a minion of apocalypse and that kind of struck us both the wrong way because that doesn't seem consistent with the shadow king as we knew him mm-hmm. but again this is marvel in the 90s so a lot of it would be what trademarks can we refresh and renew which characters haven't been published in years that we could put back on these pages to retain the trademark? Because there's the 17-year legal cycle in that. And the last time you saw Shadow King was about 1978. So 1995 is 17 years later.
1: Yeah, but they could have done some a brief, even a dedicated a page to it, like something to have it make sense.
0: Yeah, they could have easily done that, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if he was there, because Marketing and Legal told editorial, put him in this story so he can keep that copyright. Mm -hmm. In terms of Fallout from this, well, Age of Apocalypse was popular enough that it's been revisited in some alternate timeline stories, so some people have gone back to this world. It's a part of Marvel's Secret Wars event that's going on right now. At least a version of the Age of Apocalypse is in that. But the biggest Fallout is probably the creation of Blink. She's a supporting character in here. Yep. But she does go on to lead the Exiles after her own four-issue limited series after this. And Nate Gray, the alternate future child of Cyclops and Jean Gray, who in this is X-Man, his four-issue limited series became an ongoing because it was that popular, which lasted several years. It, I believe, was in publication until Marvel filed for bankruptcy and cut way back on everything.
1: I wish they had more time in this run to go develop his character a bit more. Yeah.
0: I think the story would have been better served with uh, four 10-issue stories rather than 10 four-issue stories. Because that's really what we have. We have the Gamut and the External Story, the X-Men Story, the Factor X, Generation X. There's all these four-issue stories. I think it would have been better if they'd had fewer titles on the market. Mm-hmm. But been able to tell those stories in more depth and maybe had a broader cast of characters.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Because there's a lot of potential with X-Men here, especially with the Age of Apocalypse version of Mr. Sinister. He's a a different version, and they had a lot of potential. But so much of the rest was just, oh, that guy who was dead before in this nastier, much more violent world? Well, he's not dead. And I kept asking myself, why are there more characters alive at the start of this, in this world, at this status quo, than there are in the more peaceful, less violent mainstream Marvel universe? Mm -hmm. And that's why I believe a lot of it was just retaining copyright. Because I noticed that the only dead characters that they brought back were ones that had died within 17 years. (laughs) So they didn't go back to any of the characters that died in the 60s or even the early to mid 70s. They just started with the later ones. So I I believe a lot of the dead characters that came back were brought back for the sake of retaining copyrights and trademarks on their names.
1: I would, I also wish they had done more with Mr. Sinister in it.
0: Yeah, this was kind of his heyday. He's got one of the more interesting backstories and he's one of the planners. He's got plans among plans and going through. He is one of the better X-Men villains. And here we all we really get is a glimpse of him running the same sort of plans he was already running in the Marvel 616 universe that we'd seen in much more detail. So we learned less about him than anyone else, even though he had more status quo changes just in terms of his appearance and abilities.
1: Mm-hmm. It's like going on a Skype date from afar.
0: <laughs> so in any anyway, this did make the list because it was significant. As we said, they had enough faith in this story arc that when it launched, this was it. The entire X line was nothing but Age of Apocalypse. Mm. So, I mean, that's really the significance of it. We get some glimpses of things that mostly play out in Exiles, and then in other alternate universe stories, like What If, or Secret Wars, where they cobble multiple universes together. In terms of the impact this had, this was one of the last big-selling stories for Marvel. The comics bubble in the 90s was very much about to burst. The speculator market was starting to dry up, the oversales of multiple covers was about to stop happening, and the intertwined stories were starting to get frustrating to the buyers because it was hard to buy just one book in the line.
1: I remember being mad when there's two different covers, and I didn't know which one to buy because I could only afford one, <laughs> and then spending forever not being able to decide, yeah. and then being really upset if later I should have bought the other one.
0: <laughs> yep. I remember... If- Having more than four covers, I remember buying a copy of X-Men number one when it first came out that had five different versions of the cover, or possibly six. There were four different covers. Uh, The fifth version was a gatefold that had those first four covers all in one piece of paper so you could see them all Uh if you'd want to buy all four and line them up. And there may have been a six that was like a hologram or a foil version of that one as well. I Remember that clearly. But that experiment panned out well. That was and still is the highest-selling single issue of any comic ever, with over 8 million copies sold. So for the next few years, you couldn't do anything without having multiple covers on part of a quote-unquote major storyline, if
1: yeah. not the whole thing. Yeah, because I remember, I want to say maybe it was Gen X1 had a regular cover, cover and then a special edition cover, I think?
0: Yeah, they did a lot of regular and foil covers in the day.
1: Yeah. I think that I think that one was the one I'm thinking about. Because it took me forever to track down a special edition one because I didn't want the regular cover.
0: <laughs> yeah, that was that was kind of the era where I stopped collecting comics the first time. As I said, I remember buying X-Men number one, but I was out by the time issue 20 came out, which was part of this crossover. Mm-hmm. I was only five or six issues in, and then I switched just to the Infinity Events, and that was it.
1: The first, I know the first comic book given to me was Magneto Zero, and I loved that one. I don't know if anybody else has read that one, but it, I loved it. Have you read it? No. <gasps> you need to read it.
0: No, I'll have to see if it's on Digital Unlimited. So one of the things that we typically discuss in this podcast is how we were first introduced to this story. In my case, this is an omnibus I picked up when at one point I decided to own every X-Men comic ever before I found out how many tie there were in the 90s, because I was planning to own every Marvel comic book in continuity title ever. I picked up the omnibus and didn't crack it open until... It was time to read it for this podcast. So my first exposure to it was actually reading it for this. So how about you, Amanda?
1: Uh, The first time I read this omnibus was for this one. But a different Apocalypse run, I'm going to totally blank on the series, was because I was at a comic book shop and whoever owned it didn't know what they were doing and put the whole originally run series in like a dollar bin. And I even got The Death of Multiple Man for a dollar with the special edition cover. And yeah. So I, I read those ones and I really liked Apocalypse's character and what they were doing with him. So not as much as I, the Phoenix Saga was for me, though, because that one was my favorite.
0: Yeah, and that one is coming up. We'll hear Jon and Wilson and I discuss that in a few months' time. they made top five.
1: Yeah. and I want, Yeah, I really want, uh, what is it, Hellfire? Madeline Pryor? Inferno. Inferno,
0: yeah. Yeah. Inferno, unfortunately, did not make the list.
1: I know. And Blink tried to get me Inferno, but it turns out it's ungodly expensive.
0: <laughs> it had been, but they it's actually gone back to print in trade paperback collection format. Oh, did it? Volume 1 comes out this month. Mm. Yeah. So, I think that's about it. I mean, we can't really go into a lot more detail about the significance, because that's pretty much all that came out was Blink. Who is a great character. I do strongly recommend Judd Winnick's run, at least on Exiles, to anyone who hasn't read it
1: yet. Yeah, you could do a lot with her character. Oh, yeah.
0: She showed up recently in the X-Men Days of Future Past film. Mm-hmm. And is going to be a big player in the X-Men Apocalypse movie that's coming out, which is... I'm
1: so pumped for that.
0: Yeah, that's another one that's coming out, and that's part of the influence of this, is we've got a movie centered on Apocalypse, mm-hmm. who's a villain I like because I was a big X-Factor fan under the original crew. Back in the day, and dropped it before Peter David took over, which is probably a mistake. And Apocalypse was a big part of that, especially the send-off. It's one of my all-time favorite X-Men stories, is the end of that run. So I don't know how much influence we're going to have on it next year with, is it Oscar Isaac? Is that the actor's name? I have no idea. So the man <laughs> who played Poe Dameron in Star Wars The Force Awakens is also playing Apocalypse in X-Men Apocalypse. Crazy. Yeah. So the either- ladies
1: are going to love that.
0: Yeah, So either this version of Apocalypse is going to bear no resemblance to the comic version, or we're going to see that that actor has a considerable range. Because Apocalypse, done right, has little or nothing in common with Poe Dameron. So the ladies will be happy with him as Apocalypse, and then they'll be happy with Olivia Munn as Psylocke, I'm sure. But at least until X-Men Apocalypse comes out, I don't think there's much more we could say about the impact this is going to have. So I think from there, all we have left for this week's podcast, which is probably going to be a short one, is the section of the podcast that I have so blatantly stolen from Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, which everyone should be listening to. They're doing fantastic stuff, going through every episode and movie of Star Trek in order. At the time of this recording, they are near the end of Season 3 of Next Generation, having already done original series, animated series, and the original crew movies. And they've recently announced that they're going to do all of Next Gen, then the four Next Gen movies, then all of DS9, then all of Voyager, then all of Enterprise, then the J.J. Abrams films, and then the new CBS series that starts in 2017. So this is the part where we look for messages and morals in here. And for your traditional X-Men, there's a lot of the classic do-the-right-thing kind of message. Mm -hmm. We see at the start of the story, the Summers brothers are Apocalypse's minions or lieutenants, but Scott Summers changes his mind and has been secretly working to free mutants for a while. We see other elements of characters who are doing the right thing. Even though this world is more messed up, Magneto is trying to do the right thing as he does in the main Marvel Universe. Here is just more successful at it because there's a more clear opponent.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, aside from that, we clearly see also that heroism is not completely subjective. There's a very, shall we say, uncomfortable scene in Legion Quest early on.
1: Yeah, the scene where I'm not sure if He's his own father.
0: <laughs> yeah, there's there's a scene that takes place when, when Moira McTaggart and Professor Charles Xavier are romantically involved, and we know Legion is there. We know somebody makes love to Moira, which is the point of conception. We're not clear if it really is Charles, or if Legion just made his mother see him as Charles.
1: Yeah, when I was reading it, I was like, why? Blade, what the
0: hell? Yeah. So either Legion is uh, a scumbag of the most extreme and disgusting proportions, or he's only slightly less disgusting because he sat in the bushes and watched, watched his it. own conception.
1: Yeah. Cause that. Because yeah. That.
0: That part is really unclear, and it's. I personally find it easier to sleep at night to believe he was just watching from the bushes. <laughs> It's only slightly less busy then.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, either way, there's an issue there.
1: Mm-hmm. I thought I thought that they were going to use uh, Magneto and Rogue's son being taken by Apocalypse more. I felt like that just kind of fell apart.
0: Yeah, the whole storyline about young Charles, it seemed like they decided, okay, Rogue and Magneto are going to have a child. Magneto does have a lot of respect and positive thinking about Charles, who's going to name his son after Charles. And they didn't really know what else to do with him, so he became the prize MacGuffin for Apocalypse to steal to motivate the other guys to come get him. Uh Now, compare this to the earlier storyline I mentioned, which was X-Factor 65 through 68, if memory serves. I haven't looked it up. Which was the first time Apocalypse decided to steal a baby, specifically uh, Nathaniel Christopher Summers. That's a very different storyline, and that is the one I mentioned earlier, which is one of my favorites. This is the one where you first start getting hints that Cable is actually Cyclops' son before it was officially revealed.
1: Mm-hmm. I like how Angel pretty much did exactly what I would have expected from him, even in an alternative line.
0: Yeah. Angel, or you know Warren Worthington, Warren Kenneth Worthington III, if you're really pedantic, he's always been better at the politics and the business end than the superhero end,
1: mm-hmm. which
0: is also a big part of the early X-Factor. It was why he wasn't on the team after the giant-sized X-Men number one and uncanny X-Men. And here he's doing that. He's kind of playing the middle, helping people without putting a target on his back as much as possible until he really has no choice and is forced to take action. When he does, he does so for the greater good.
1: I would have liked to see what happens with that redhead as baby that Havoc hooks up with the singer at at Angel's Club. Yes. Except that timeline's gone, so. Yeah,
0: and for some reason I'm blanking on that character's name right now. When I was cataloging this in my database, I have read through X-Men comics right up to 1989. I haven't read continuously this far. She did show up in the database as a character that exists in the mainstream continuity, but she appeared shortly before this storyline and hasn't been used in a few years since. So this is the only storyline I've read with that character. Mm -hmm. But there are other other storylines with that non-version of that character in there, or a different version of that character. Of course, in the mainstream comics, she's not involved with Havoc because Lorna Dane is. Mm -hmm. So... Last year. I mean, did you pick up on any other messages or morals that came out of this?
1: I really enjoyed the relationship between Sabretooth and Child. I really liked that. Like, for me, that, that had more emotional impact for me than Rogue and Magneto having a baby did. Probably because I was irritated <laughs> by the, the whole baby-making not being explained.
0: <laughs> yeah. That's one thing with comic readers, you got to know they're going to have questions and you have to have answers lined up.
1: Mm -hmm. Even if
0: it's a quick lip service, Rogue Magneto, all it would take is one line of dialogue, which is, I wish I were still in control of my powers.
1: Yeah, or remember (laughs) that night we had a mutant caller?
0: (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't take much, but some things I think do need something.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So I think one of the last things we usually discuss is why we think this landed at this point in the tournament, or in the countdown. So...
1: Uh, it really feeds into fan fiction or fan ideas, like hookups they wish they'd seen, or alternatives they wish they'd gotten got to see or experience or see what how they think one of their favorite characters might have acted if they were put in a different position, and some you said you did see act differently, like beast Angel acted pretty much the way people would have expected, I think, yeah, but I do prefer the different evil version of Beasts.
0: Yeah, one of the other dark beasts.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Havoc is very different.
1: Yes, very different.
0: Yeah, but Wolverine, being the most popular character in the X-Men franchise at this point, is pretty much the same.
1: Yeah.
0: He's from the If It Ain't Broke, Don't Fix It school. This Magneto was a callback to the Magneto that ran the the New Mutants from the Xavier School when Charles was off in space with Lalandra. So that period when he was trying to be a hero before X-Men 1. Yeah, I... I think that's about it. I mean, we talk about the three elements that usually land things on the countdown, right? We look at the entertainment value, which is here, especially if, you know, as Amanda said, you like to do the fanfic, and what about these hookups or those hookups? There is a lot of that to play with, and it is just a very entertaining story. Mm -hmm. It is well-written. The second point is the impact on continuity and the significance, which for fans of The Exiles is there, but otherwise, there's not a huge impact that this has. And the third one is that the messages are meanings. And here, so there's kind of that do the right thing element, but by and large, there's no message or meaning that's unique to this story. So I think it just is the fun of having a well-written story in a fairly well-developed alternate timeline. That would have been a bit of a shock when you're collecting at the time when all of a sudden all the comics that you're used to collecting are off the market and been completely replaced by other books.
1: I'm sure there are some pretty epic arguments with the writers, like pushing for different things that they wanted to see.
0: (sighs) I can imagine. This is when Jeff Loeb first joined the X-Men office to start writing. And it's a story he's told on the Loeb Report, which is what they call it when he's over on Word Balloon, which is another excellent podcast where John Suntress sits down with creators and tries to put out at least one a week, which are over an hour. They're very in-depth interviews, very candid. And Jeff Loeb flat out says when he was first joining the X-Men writing team, he... You went to the X offices or he got invited to them. He got a call saying, hey, are you familiar with the X-Men as a comic book? And he said, "Yep." Yeah. Are you interested in writing one of these titles? He said, "Yep." Yeah. They said, have you heard anything about the way things are working interpersonally between personalities and individuals within the X office? He said, no. Nope. They said, perfect. You want a job?
1: <laughs>
0: so there are some very talented writers there. Fabian Nisi is, a, is still writing and still writing well. I think he's one of the ones that has consistently good output. Mark Wade is quite probably my favorite writer who's out there working today. We've got Warren Ellis on the list. These are very good writers. Scott Lobdell. The quality of his work on his page is generally good. I just haven't read his stuff in a while because I'm not happy with what I've heard about his personal conduct at some conventions. Mm. But yeah, these are talented people. When you look at the list of artists, we've got Steve Epting, we've got the Cuberts, we've got Salvador Larroca. You know, people complain a lot about you know how bad the art was in the 90s and how the creators were terrible but most of the people doing these are still very active and well-respected creators today the issues with the 90s were very clearly i think people who were not hired for their storytelling creative abilities dictating to those who were what they should be doing so did you have any closing thoughts on this one
1: even though this was already quite a long read there's some things that i wish they'd had more time to develop or go into more detail because like you said it might have been a bit better if they'd had more to dedicate into it rather than it be broken up into short bits and sometimes i felt when you were switching between issues that the continuity wasn't as it wasn't as seamless or as smooth so sometimes it felt a little bit disjointed
0: yeah we both read this in the omnibus edition which Essentially has Legion Quest first, then x Men Alpha, then the first issue of all those miniseries, then all the second issues, then all the third issues in the order that those issues were published, which works well enough. But if, if you were reading this yourself, I don't know if all the print editions are arranged that way. I would recommend using Marvel Digital Limited, which has most of the issues, but not all of them, or with the paper collections or whatever you're doing. I would actually refer to the complete Marvel reading order website which is basically a fan-driven website. That's where you can find podcasts like Avengers Inspirations hosted by John M. Wilson, who's been a very frequent guest on this podcast. And one of the things that they do is these fans will sit down and debate and discuss and come up with the best reading order for stories like this. So you could do it that way. I think it would have been a better read had I read, you know, picked, say, Generation Next and read all four issues. Mm -hmm. And then came on the externals and read all four issues to at least get those stories coherently. Because there's so many short miniseries. You read one comic and then you read, you know, eight or nine more before you come back to the next part in that original story. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I had, I had trouble following, Um, I, I can't remember the character's name, but he's like kind of bluey black color, really huge and big nose and big hair. You know what I'm talking about? Where he was, like, gonna hook up with a hooker, but... Because I think he was a bad guy, but then I think somebody else, like, was impersonating him.
0: Yeah, he was one created for the story. I'm also blanking on his name. But he's the one that shows up in the... It's art by Chris Pachalo. And I, I look at his design, and to me it strikes me as being inspired by the old witch who could carry her eye around from the Dark Crystal. That's just her size and the hair and the skin tone reminds me of her. But our, I think Husk was the one that was masquerading as this character. But as you can see, we're having a hard time even remembering the name. It, it does get hard to follow when it's arranged this way. So I would recommend checking the complete Marvel reading order, or just reading the miniseries in sequence.
1: Yeah, I think w- I, th- I would have enjoyed it a lot more if it had been all of this story because it, it would be easier to have that all put together. Read through it, you understand what's happening there, and then even if those things are happening at different times and places in the next set, I think it would be a lot easier to keep straight what's going on rather than
0: yeah, you get some spoiler, yeah, you get some spoilers that way because there's times where issue two of this miniseries impacts issue three of another, but those are relatively few compared to the. The problems with trying to keep track of what was going on. I found when I was reading this, I was going back to my database and rereading the plot synopsis of the first two issues or the first three issues by the time it was done to remind myself what was going on.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. And that's not a fault of the writing.
1: No, not at all.
0: The writers were coherent for that four-part story that they were telling. It just would have been nice if the omnibus had slightly different arrangement. So when we talk about, for example, Annihilation, which is coming up in six weeks' time, That event, when it's published in a three-volume hardcover, does arrange it that way. So you get the prologue, then you get all four issues of NOMA's miniseries, and all four issues of Silver Surfer's miniseries, and the four-issue miniseries effectively take turns going through before you get to the main event, which made it much easier to follow. So anyway, that's what I had to say about it, aside from... If you want to read stories for the impact they had on continuity, I wouldn't go looking for this one, but if you're just looking for a fun read... In an alternate universe with X-Men characters. Um, yeah, this is a good place to look, although, as we said, if you get in the Omnibus format, or possibly also the four-volume trade paperback format, you may want to have a number of bookmarks ready and flip back and forth between the volumes to read them in a different order than the order that they're published. Yeah. So did you have any other closing thoughts?
1: Uh, it was still a fun read, and I enjoyed seeing different characters doing different things, and I did really like the Rogue-Magneto hookup, but just the whole baby thing. My need for an explanation couldn't get past it. (laughs) Because that's so huge for Rogue's character. So huge. So I felt like they took something that's so important about her character that causes her so much emotional pain and strife, and it's why she does or doesn't do so many things, and just left it out.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I would agree with that. So... Alright, so that said, for those of you reading along at home, you could join us next week for X-Men God Loves Man Kills, which was originally published as Marvel graphic novel novel number five. It has been reprinted in X-Men God Loves Man Kills number one, X-Men God Loves Man Kills special edition number one, Extreme X-Men God Loves Man Kills trade paperback, and then the X-Men God Loves Man Kills hardcover from 2008. It's also available on Comixology and Marvel Digital Unlimited. I'd like to thank Amanda again for joining us. And uh, so those of you at home, please feel free to rate this and any other shows that you listen to on iTunes and on Stitcher. It really does help the shows get noticed and draw a bigger audience. You can also share links to episodes that you think friends would be interested with those and are encouraged to do so. And finally, thank you for listening. Comic books aren't for kids anymore. We've heard the refrain for years in mainstream media, but 30 seconds at the end of a newscast or two paragraphs in a magazine can't provide the -the behind-the-scenes information or entertainment like one episode of Word Balloon. Welcome to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. This is John Suntras. Word Balloon is a one-on-one interview program featuring pop culture conversations with storytellers. People who don't read today's comic books may think the medium is still being written for nine-year-olds, but as film, television, and video game producers can tell you, they couldn't be more wrong. These writers and artists are just as entertaining talking about their process as they are producing the stories they make. Listen to a sample episode and discover why Word Balloon leads the way in pop culture entertainment coverage.